O Heavenly Father, we declare with these songs that we have sung that you are the most valuable and precious of anything that we could imagine in all the universe and for all time and for eternity. There is no treasure like our God. Surely where our heart is or where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. If there be in any of us any wicked way that might treasure, Lord, in competition with your beauty, your majesty, your value, and your glory, anything of this earth of too high esteem in our souls and in our hearts, I pray that the altar of this place would be strewn with the idols of our own manufacturing this morning so that Christ and Christ alone may be enthroned in our hearts even as we have sought to enthrone you, Lord, on the praises of your people this morning. Let your name be lifted up and let men be drawn to you, not just in the theme of this assembly, but in the confession and in the heart of each individual believer in this room as we leave this place. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth into the inner recesses of our soul this morning by the power of the Spirit to effect this cause, this end, Lord, to bring us into conformity with our Lord Jesus Christ, to continue the process of sanctification whereby we are transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord, to bring to us an awareness of our sin and again our hope in Jesus Christ, our Savior, a confession, a turning from, and a running towards your holiness. Lord, if there are any in this room today who fellowship with us who do not know you in the first place, I pray that your Spirit might use this time to draw them to your throne, that they might bow the knee, that they would not walk away sorrowful from the opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, but they would say, I am a wretched sinner, a wretched sinner, and in Christ alone is my salvation and my hope. Save me, O Lord. Extend your mercy and blood over my sin, that I might be yours and you might be my greatest treasure. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. You can remain standing and turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. The title of this morning's message is Astonishing Answers. We will read verses 20 through 30, and we will note in the text and the structure of my message this morning three questions that are brought to Christ, each of which is answered, and the astonishing truth that Christ delivers to the hearer in each answer. So let us begin in Matthew 16. Follow with me as I read verses 20 through 30. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will have followed me. You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
Last week we were in this passage. There will be some overlap with our message. It was previously given along the theme. We noted in Matthew 19 last week, between the verses of 13 through 22, that there are lessons we can learn on the difference between the children who came to Christ and Christ was sought by their guardians to bless them and to pray for them. And then the young man who came on their heels in the narrative of Matthew, who did not ask purely for mercy, but sought Christ as to the standard whereby he might be guaranteed eternal life, and he presumed it was on his own works. He testified to the fact that he himself had kept the law. He delivered his resume, if you will, to the Lord of glory as a faithful law keeper. Christ told him at the end of this exchange, there's one thing you yet lack. What do I still lack was the question, and Jesus answered him, if you would be perfect. In verse 21, he said, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Last week, I invited us to note in the text the difference between children and their approach to Christ in their dependency and their innocence and the unqualified Except, or the unqualified terms in which we see the interaction between the Lord of glory and these innocent, helpless, not innocent, I should say, I should change that to be these helpless and dependent little ones. Why not innocent? Well, in fact, the Bible teaches that all of us have need of a Savior. From the smallest seemingly innocent child to this young man, this rich ruler who came to Christ to seek him for advice and counsel. But the difference between these two, the children and the young man, was in their approach of humility and dependency versus pride and self-made attitude of I can do it and I have something to offer, something to work with, only give me some helpful advice to add to my initiative and perhaps I can be guaranteed eternal life. That was the contrast that we beheld in the last message. This morning I'd like you to notice another contrast in the text. In four words, the first two, follow me. The second two, went away. This comes from verses 21 and 22. Jesus appeals to the man. He brings his word. He calls to him. He says, if you will have treasure in heaven, come follow me. The man not heeding these words, not finding it within himself, the initiative the desire, the ability to follow Christ, the motive, he says in verse 22, or the, it's recorded in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Jesus calls to him, come follow me. He goes away sorrowful. Why? Well, it says in the close of verse 22, for he had great possessions. For this man, his great possessions stood in between him and Christ. He could not walk past the things that he treasured most. His influence, perhaps, as a ruler, Luke records, 1818. This man was important and influential, well-respected, no doubt, in the community. He could not walk past his notoriety, his influence, his position of importance to follow Christ. There was a wall in between him and this command, this call to come follow me in the form of wealth, substance, material, possessions. He could not walk past that which he owned, leave it all behind, forsake life as the world defines and describes it, that he might gain eternal life according to Jesus' terms in the kingdom of God. Perhaps there are many other things that are represented by this roadblock, by this wall, that stands in between the message, the call, come and follow me, and our initiative, and our motivation. And thus, in the record of Matthew, this story is recorded for us to take seriously a serious audit of our own heart to see where indeed, according to Matthew chapter 6, our treasure lies. Because surely, if we can identify that location, That is where our heart is. If our treasure is somewhere else, 
than what is promised in the kingdom of God, in life in Christ, in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it is somewhere else, if we stashed it in a future here on earth, in our friends and associations, in our job career path, in our purposes, dreams, and goals, in this life alone, if we stashed our treasure there, there also is our heart. That is the message of Matthew 19. As Christ takes the occasion in the gospel account of Matthew to reveal the kingdom of God, this incident in Matthew 19 provides a perfect opportunity to qualify some of these things. In Matthew 19, 21 through 22, the word of Christ and worldly values reach a distinct impasse. That means this man, although he was impasse, means you've come to a point where you cannot agree. This man, though he was polite, curious, respectful, and respectable to some degree, could not come to agreement with the terms of Christ. Christ was not angry with this individual. It was not a butting of heads. This was not a conflict or a contentious scenario like he often had with the Pharisees. This was a sorrowful, sad occasion where in another place Christ said he actually loved the man. But in spite of the cordial exchange, there was something unrooted from his heart that prevented surrender, submission to the king of the kingdom of God and a willingness to leave behind all that the world defines and describes as worthy of our hope and our future and our passions and to follow Christ. Thus, there is an impasse that is reached in this passage. Jesus Christ, listen to me, listen to, to the context as we read it. This is not just Someone like an apostle or a preacher that's before you today delivering this appeal, this call, come follow me. This is Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God in the flesh, the Son of Man, the one prophesied of old, fulfilled now before the very eyes and the very experience of this individual. This is God incarnate, the Savior, the Messiah, the Creator, the Lord, the one who by the word of His power holds together this entire universe, who the prophets spoke of, who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the Lord of lords. He's the priest, the prophet, the king, the sacrifice, the rock that was in the wilderness. Now the chief cornerstone of all who are in him, the light, the way, the truth, the life, the bread, the living water, the son of David, the lamb of God, the king of kings, speaking audibly here in the experience of this young man. Come, follow me. He's addressing a visitor who is personally interested in what he will say, what Christ will say. And Christ delivers to him the call with words of absolute salvation. Come, follow me. Yet this man, having heard and having shown a particular and personal interest, having heard these words of Christ, went away sorrowful. 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 through 10 pointedly, this passage in Matthew 19, pointedly illustrate Paul's words when he said, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, wandered away from the faith, and pierced themselves with many pangs. Compare that to verse 22, when this young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It is an all too common occurrence that many in our day, in our community, perhaps in our own hearts, there is an all too common occurrence that many who drift from faithfulness and association to Christ do so because they are drawn away gradually, perhaps incrementally, a little at a time, almost don't even notice. They're drawn away by temporal cravings, a love for the things that are temporary. As again, a prior message of Christ, his first great discourse in this book, described as the things that moth and rust and thieves corrupt, destroy, and steal. Nevertheless, many of us are captive to that glitter and that sheen, and we are led away, in that case, easily 
by temporal cravings. Now these people who are drawn away from Christ by the tempting things of this life, they're not the atheist, the militant, eyes burning with the fire of unbelief and rebellion and obstinate hardness. They're an unbeliever of a different sort. Their eyes are instead mesmerized with the sounds and the lights and the promises of Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair, of course, that picture of all the world has to offer in the allegorical account of John Bunyan when he writes of, you know, whirring sounds and glittering lights and criers and merchants calling out, come here, spend money here, notice this new innovation, spend time indulging yourself with this or that amusement, a life of ease and luxury and promise and entertainment, fulfillment and joy and profit and profitability of exchange and investment of future retirement, hope and glorious interchange, heaven on earth, a utopian existence, the American dream. That's the picture of Vanity Fair that Bunyan so poignantly paints for us in his allegory. And any number of those kinds of attractions, or perhaps just one or two, are the thorns that grow up in the life of a believer. And if they aren't rooted out by the work of the Holy Spirit, end up choking the seed and it never bears fruit. And that which looked like it was grounded in Christ would endure and produce that fruit is found to be an unfertile soil. Not because there aren't nutrients in that soil, but because something is growing with the seed. A lustful desire, the temporal cravings, the waywardness of heart that is drawn apart and away, sorrowfully even, from Christ on account of these temptations. A heading this morning for us as we consider three questions in the text this morning. Gospel questions for those questioning the gospel. Three gospel questions for those questioning the gospel. The first question comes from the rich man himself. He asks Christ, what do I lack in verse 20? Secondly, it comes from the disciples, a question. They're astonished, incredulous. Who then can be saved? They throw up their arms, not knowing if there's an answer. Thirdly, Peter himself asks, what then will we have? Asking what the gospel promises. What do I still lack? Who then can be saved? What then will we have? Let's consider these in context, beginning again in Matthew 19, verse 20 through 24. Jesus, having delivered to this man the law, the second table specifically, the young man having heard his words, responds by saying, in verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things, or all these, speaking of the law, I have kept. What do I still lack? What do I still lack? Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions what do I still lack? This man, as we mentioned last week, was intrinsically aware that he was not assured eternal life. Though he, to his own satisfaction, had kept whatever laws Christ gave him as an example of a standard whereby to judge his own heart, he nevertheless knew that he fell short in some way of the glory of God. Turn with me back a few pages to Matthew chapter 5, and let us explore the nature of riches. There is a sense in which the Bible defines what is the riches or the tempting state of the soul, the dangerous affections of the heart that would keep us hard to the gospel of Christ or lead us astray or choke our seed. Let's consider on the opposite side in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, and we consider them in the negative we will begin to see a definition of the nature of riches that are destructive to the seed of the kingdom. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice that term of poverty employed there, a humility and a lack that is described in a positive sense. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What is the nature of riches or a heart that might be hardened by the same? It is simply, I would submit to you, the opposite of that list that we just read. The rich young ruler comes to Christ, and instead of one who would exhibit a poverty in spirit like the children who preceded him, he is one who feels like there is quite a bit that he can vouch for in his soul. I have kept all these laws, in fact, to a T. What do I still lack? The answer to the man's question was, in part, you lack poverty of spirit. You are the self-made, the self-acclaimed, the self-sufficient you think that you can be as God, achieving for yourself what Christ alone can secure. Romans chapter 3 says that by the law, no human being will be justified. There is only one human that ever lived that kept the law sufficiently, Jesus Christ alone. What hubris, what pride to presume that you and your own law-keeping could meet the standard of perfect, holy righteousness. That is required of the presence of a holy God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Secondly, in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who are willing to endure circumstances that are difficult, sorrowful, depressing, and not the status quo of success and happiness in this life. Are we willing to suffer any loss, any mournful circumstance, any discouragement in this life that we might gain the next? There are those who say no, and they are the rich of heart. Blessed are the meek, those who are content to be the lesser, the least of these, to be accounted, to be counted among that motley crew that fellowships in Jesus Christ and is called the church. The church of Jesus Christ is not ever, has never been, will never be made up of the rich and the famous, the well-qualified, who God carefully looked over the sea of humanity and said, oh, you look like you have some natural abilities. You look like you're talented. You are definitely an ambitious soul. I will take you into my kingdom. Christ's kingdom is not made up of such applicants. Otherwise, the rich young ruler would have been a shoe in and indeed he thought he was. The kingdom of God is made up of a different sort. It's made up of the destitute, afflicted, the needy, the diseased, the poor, the forgotten, the outcast, and those who recognize their depravity of body and soul. When Christ was ministering, he ministered in areas where lepers would gather in colonies, where outcasts would seek to scrape together a menial existence, where parents cried out for help, begging for a little money because they had a lame child, where a man sat at the temple gate for years, not being able to carry himself to the place of worship. People like that. The meek are the ones who will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not the ones who have an insatiable desire to be successful in this life. To be able to turn in to their boss at their career in their corporate environment. An absolute impeccable record of success in this business endeavor or that. Not that it's a wrong desire on the face of it to be successful in these certain things, but it certainly is if it becomes our idol or our measure of merit. No, those who hunger and thirst and have an insatiable appetite and desire for righteousness, to be in good standing with the Lord. And those who are of that sort treasure the precious blood of Christ because they know they are not in good standing with Him were it not for that work on Calvary. So they come with joyful hearts to celebrate communion with God's people as we will do in two weeks. Why? Because they grasp onto every tangible reminder of the precious blood of Christ that ransomed, redeemed, reconciled them to, the, to a fellowship with the Father. They hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the bread of life, even if it means the cup of Christ's sufferings and their desire for the things of this world grows strangely dim, as the song says, in the light of His glory and His grace. Who are those who are rich in this world? We're the ones who are not merciful, 
but keep a record of wrongs, who are not pure in heart, but instead are self-righteous, who do not seek peace, but instead seek to assert with leverage their own power, their own importance, their own authority. They are the ones who are not willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, to be counted among the fools and the outcasts, but the ones who save face and instead of associating with Christ and the misfit band that follow Him, pretend or seek acceptance in some other group that the world says is in vogue. Blessed are you, Christ says, verse 11, when these sorts of folks, those who are rich and wise and important and valued and popular in the world, revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things falsely on my account. The nature of riches, I submit to you, is the polar opposite of Matthew 5, 3-11. It's the unbeatitudes. It's the opposite of these things that characterize the broken and the ones who, are, who know it. As we uh, recall last week as well, there was a picture I gave you, a real-life example of poverty versus acclaim and prosperity in the town or in the city of Singapore. And in the slums, there's shanty towns into the distance built on garbage. But across the street, there's high-rises with skyscrapers and infinity pools. And this is a stark picture of the difference between two societies Economically speaking, that's a good example of the difference of what it means to follow Christ. We come to the Lord just as we are, a wretch in need of forgiveness. We recognize that we live on the shan- in the shanty town built on garbage, and there is no high rise. There is no skyscrapers with infinity pools in this life that, we, that is worth trading our soul for. We are those who are content if the Lord calls us to live in squalor with sewage running past our front door. If He would call us only that we might have, by faith, the promise of eternal life, a mansion in glory. One that the most glorious, beautiful city that man could ever dream and civil architects could ever put together in the sum of the, of the material wealth and resources of this world could never boast of. We're talking a city that comes out of heaven, perfectly designed by the architect who created this universe in the first place, where every sorrow is wiped away, where every tear is dried, where every disease is eradicated, and where perfect fellowship And the shadowless existence, because Christ shines with beauty through that whole city, that's the future for those who find themselves associating with Christ. And we do not want to trade that for anything less. There's a song that comes to mind that I remember growing up, I used to listen to, and there's one line in it, just as I am, I am needy and dry. Jesus is for losers the self-made need not apply. Just as I am, I am needy and dry. Jesus is for losers. The self-made need not apply. A play on words and a clever way of stating what does riches that would disqualify us from the kingdom look like? It looks like this. I would submit to you, well summarized in that last phrase, the self-made need not apply. Christ says in Matthew 19 that the rich can enter. There is hope. Rich in this sense, ones who are blessed with material wealth, this side of glory. But they do so with difficulty. He has expounded the difficulty of following Him in a prior passage. And so turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 16, 24, as I read again, 19, 23. It says, And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. As we turn back to Matthew 16, 24 through 28, we read about the difficulty that is part of the gospel call for every believer, rich and poor alike. Then Jesus told his disciples, verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory, in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The shape of that text is very similar to ours in Matthew 19. And it includes this idea that the call to the gospel is a call to die. It is a call to associate ourselves with the work of Christ, even His sufferings, even unto death. We might ask ourselves, what does it mean when Christ says to the young man, follow me? I was seeking uh, some answers to that question and found a few in Thayer's Greek lexicon. And the historical grammatical context of that call to follow me includes ideas. Come join me as a disciple. Come crave and cling steadfastly to one. Conform wholly to his example in living and if need be in dying also. Again, what does it mean to follow Christ? It means to join him as a disciple. To cleave steadfastly to Him alone. To conform wholly to His example in living. And if need be, in dying also. This is what it means to be called as a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why Christ described this call as taking up our cross and following Him. Even as He issues this call in charge to the self-acclaimed, the self-made rich young ruler and Matthew 19. Finally, under what do I still lack as that question comes forth from the text and the answer is given in the Beatitudes. What do you still lack? You lack the understanding that the self-made need not apply. You lack the truth of the gospel that no man will be justified by the law but instead is proven a sinner and can plead only for mercy upon the testimony of its indictment over your soul. That is what you lack. You lack the gospel as the message to the rich young ruler. Yet again, in this context, there is hope. And there is an idiom that Christ employs. He says, again I tell you, verse 24, Matthew 19, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And just another historical note for you, in the rabbinic literature, in the, uh, the way that words and terms and idioms were employed in Christ's day and following in Jewish culture, that hyperbole was actually meant to communicate the literally impossible. We have heard sometimes, perhaps you've heard these things are sort of like urban legends and none of them is really substantiated that maybe there was a gate that was very small, a camel had to crawl through its, on its knees that was referred to as the needle or the eye of the needle. And yes, the camel can squeeze his way through, but he does so with difficulty. Um, also in the history of the interpretation, there's uh, uh, the the term for cable and camel is very similar in the original language, so it's the thought that, well, it's hard to get a big rope threaded through a small needle. But upon closer scrutiny of this idiom, this figure of speech, the camel and needle picture is actually meant to communicate the impossible. It's a kind of hyperbole or use of language to show that with man, no one can be saved. And of course, we find that in the rest of the text, when the disciples ask, who then can be saved? As we'll study a little bit in a little bit more detail on the next point, Jesus says, with God, it is impossible. And with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What do I still lack? The miraculous intervention of Jesus Christ. What do I lack? I lack, as a rich man or this man lacks, only one thing to realize that God is the one who saves. Salvation is of the Lord. Second question in our text this morning, who then can be saved? Again, Matthew 19, 25 and 26, we read, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, 
But with God, all things are possible. First of all, consider the nature of favor. Who then can be saved? The nature of God's favor and evidence of that favor, there was a presupposition in the minds of the Pharisees that caused them astonishment when Christ said this. He said, it is very difficult, nigh impossible, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Only with difficulty is such a thing a realistic possibility. And so they cry out, well, who then can be saved? Well, their understanding was that worldly riches and wealth was universally a sign of God's blessing. That is to say, it was commonly held in their day that wealth and possessions was evidence of divine favor and the approval, divine approval of the Lord on a person's life. So the idea in their question then, and their incredulity that you can read between the lines, well, who then can be saved? The situation is hopeless is if those who are most favored among us, as evidenced in their material possessions, can't come to Christ, then the poor are even less likely because they exist under conditions that uh, show that God is not favoring them as much anyway. And so the standard is so high and the road's so narrow that they just throw up their arms in frustration, thinking that no one can come to the Lord. Well, of course, there was a presupposition, as I mentioned in their question, that wasn't quite correct, as there is in much of our own thinking. This is where reading the Bible closely is helpful. After all, who among us hasn't been tempted to be envious or covetous of a comfortable lifestyle of someone we know? Now, I have only really known a life of living from paycheck to paycheck, What for me is the reality of life is bills come at the end of the month and hopefully the homeowners pay as well. And then we will continue to be able to meet the demands of our living conditions based on a trust that the homeowners I've worked through through the course of the week and my construction job will pay. I've never known really the comfort of a guaranteed income or a salary or big investments or that kind of thing, financial independence. But I can tell you one thing I have known I have known the envy, I have known envy in my own heart of those who can enjoy such a circumstance. And if I don't catch myself, I am easily guilty of considering that a better and more favorable position. Well, don't be so fast in jumping to conclusion, the text tells us today. If our position in life causes us to have many reminders of our dependency on the Lord, who, it says again in the Sermon on the Mount, provides for us our daily bread. This, brothers and sisters, is a good thing. So the nature of God's favor need not be misunderstood. Let us consider it in context. Secondly, under this question, who then can be saved? We find another difficult idea for the disciples to grasp. This Christ's approach to the young man is counterintuitive to worldly standards on a number of measures. This is a counterintuitive approach. This doesn't seem to betray much common sense, surely in their minds or in our unsanctified minds, as we read it. Why would someone turn away a polite, rich, famous, influential young man? This is kind of a contra-humanism approach. In other words, we would think the most powerful tools in growing a movement, growing a church, advancing the kingdom, making more Christians, converts, spreading the gospel, would to take interested parties who would like to come alongside as team members and let's get this thing done, which is with as much capital fundraising as we could possibly gain. You ever seen in the foyer of a church where you have a thermometer and a building fund? It's almost obligatory, right? It's part of the culture church experience. And as more people give, you paint that red stripe higher and higher, do you not? Until you get to the top, and there's probably a big celebration and a potluck and whatever. And then you build your building or whatever. Or maybe it's just the top of the thermometer is collateral to secure a huge loan for a big complex with an ideal, you know, if you build it, they will come. Uh, something more out of a movie than the Word of God. Well, anyways, these are the kinds of things we tend to employ and think about when we want to grow the kingdom. And certainly if someone came to us and said, I'm very interested in your church, 
And we know a little bit about who they are. We know very easily we can assess that they're relatively wealthy because of where they live over here on the Whitefish Chain, how much they give to the community. We know a little bit about their story. Would we turn them away, especially if their pocketbook represented about four or five hashes on that thermometer in the foyer? Well, certainly not. Oh, yeah, well, you know, instead of turning that person away, and, or being in danger of doing so by preaching the gospel clearly to where their heart is, how many churches, how many ministries, how many of us have, as individuals are afraid of alienating the influential? If you go out there and you are so committed to the terms of the gospel that the self-made need not apply, you risk turning away untold amounts of dollars and untold amounts of influence in the community. That, brothers and sisters, is the way God has always built His kingdom. Let's not change it now. Let's not adopt humanistic postmodern values, water down the gospel, and accept all kinds of concessions with worldly values to ostensibly grow the kingdom. Remember Deuteronomy 7? Why did God choose Israel? Not because they were rich, young, and ruled anything. Because they were weak and few in number. And when He was shown to be great through His works among that people. Who got the glory? Who got the credit? Christ alone. Church growth attempts these days, they've turned these biblical ideals on their head. They've made concessions with the world. They've adopted worldly philosophies of success. It's more about minimizing the gospel and maximizing making friends and influencing people so that we, might can, so that we can pretend on the surface level to have all kinds of success. In the end, we might only be building the same thing the rich young ruler was interested in building. Things that perish with the using and do not represent the heart of the gospel distract and choke the seed of the word in our heart. Let it not be said of us and let us search our hearts in light of the standard of God's word to see if we need repentance in these areas. Again, under who then can be saved? It is an impossible standard that Jesus promotes in this passage. How can, after all, a camel possibly go through the eye of a needle? Who then can be saved? Well, indeed, it is a human impossibility. Reformed theology, which I hold to in this church, holds to confesses the sovereignty of God in salvation. It's another way of stating Psalm 3, 8, Jonah 2, 9, Psalm 68, 19 through 20, Revelation 7, 10, and Matthew 19, all which say, in as many words, salvation belongs to our God. Or in the words of Matthew 19, with God, all things are possible. The camel can go through the eye of the needle because of the power of God alone. No riches, no influence, no human effort, no concessions, no synergistic relationship. The monergistic, that means the total and exclusive power of God alone to save His own. Who then can be saved? Those that He calls. Those whose heart He softens. Those in whom He's planted the seed. Those in whom He's given ears to hear. He's opened eyes to see. Those who have been miraculously acquainted with the revelation of the glory of God. Finally, under who then can be saved, let me remind you of some textual exceptions to the rich not usually coming into the kingdom, and these are great. I just want to refer to them uh, for just, just in a brief overview, and you can study them later on your own. Think of Matthew himself, chapter 9, verse 9. Uh, very briefly in the gospel, Matthew's own conversion is recorded. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors were well acquainted with the monetary exchange and had every opportunity to fleece the system to work things so that they would be certainly almost always counted among the uh, rich, especially as this passage tells us who the rich are. Matthew was privileged and positioned, materially speaking, to be among the tax collectors, reviled in society because of their position. But what was different about Matthew? Matthew, as a camel, went through the needle of the gospel. How did it happen? It happened by the sovereignty of God. Matthew repented. 
He was a tax collector who followed Jesus Christ immediately when he heard his voice. The second exception that I'm thinking of this morning is Zacchaeus, also dealing with monetary uh, things and trades and a tax collector in his own right in Jericho, Luke 19, 1 through 10. You can read his story. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He had fleeced the poor and he did pad his own pockets because of the leverage that his position got him and he was very wealthy indeed. When he heard the message of the gospel, he for joy sold all that he had, paid the poor four times over, threw a party and followed Christ. Why? Because he knew there were greater riches in heaven. He was an exception. Again, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3. But Nicodemus, in full view of the authorities, at the lowest point, humanly speaking, in the life and ministry of Christ, when he had just been crucified as a common criminal by the imperial power of the day, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, two important rich men, took the body and gave Christ, according to Isaiah 53, a rich man's burial. There's four exceptions right there. And in every one of them, we see the power of God overcoming the hardness of the heart that is sometimes made that way because of ease, affluence, influence, and riches in this life. Who then can be saved? All the Lord our God calls to Himself by the sovereignty of His Holy Spirit and gives them salvation and faith as a free gift through Jesus Christ. Faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Thirdly this morning, our final point and question in the text, what then will we have? This is a question that Peter brings out. Chapter 19, again, verses 27 through 30. Then Peter said in reply to Christ, that is, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. What then will we have? First of all, Christ promises all His disciples, those who are in Him, a new world. He promises them citizenship, habitation, in a new world. This word is unique and beautiful in the Greek. I'm sure I'll slaughter this, Pelingenesia. Pelingenesia refers to two things at the same time, a born-again state and also a renovated state and uh, uh, the world. That is to say, there's, in this unique occurrence in the group, there is an idea being conveyed, a combining of what happens in salvation to mean regeneration, new birth, renovation, and in short, a messianic restoration of a pristine state. When we think of salvation in the individual sense, we think of the messianic restoration of our own heart. Christ returns us in relationship with Him to the pristine, sinless state based on the imputed righteousness of Christ in us. He washes our sins away, as far as the east is from the west, and He gives us a brand new self, a new heart in right standing with Him. Messianic renovation. Christ is saying, in addition to that, He's talking about an eschatology or an end times view. He's talking about a future messianic renovation of all things, this whole world. Not just your heart, but eventually this globe and everything will be put right. A new heavens and new earth will dawn on the faithful. We'll be walking on streets of gold, as it were, in the picture that Revelation beautifully unfolds according to this idea of palingenesia, this new world, this regenerated state, this reality in the future of regeneration, new birth, renovation, and a messianic restoration of Eden and beyond Eden. This is the future hope that we have. 
What then will we have? Peter's asking the question, well, we've obviously followed you, Christ. And so he wants to know, he's curious, what is our reward for following you? You said this man is denied a reward, riches in heaven, because he went away sorrowful. But we have followed you. We have left all we had. What will we gain? Part of the answer is a new existence, a new world, a future hope beyond imagination where Revelation 21.5 comes to pass in full manifest form where Christ declares in that glorious picture to John, behold, I am making all things new. And if you read that context later, you can get a catalog of what to expect in the Paragonesia, in the new world. Tears washed away, bodies made whole, sinless existence, glorious interchange of love and communion with God and with His people forever without end. Secondly, under what will we then have? There's a promise of government and gospel. In 28, we continue, or there's the promises continue. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you will have followed me and will also sit on 12 thrones. The picture here is a reconstitution of government. There is a reordering of all things. That term glorious throne next appears in Matthew's Matthew's gospel in chapter 25. And that's the final judgment. Christ sits. It's a picture of certainty and a conclusive, decisive, authoritative positioning. He sits on his throne. And at that point, all wrongs are righted. Justice and mercy are perfectly metered out according to those in Christ. The wheat and those who are not, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats are separated and they're rewarded and burned accordingly. This is what we will have. We have the expectation in Christ as disciples and followers of Him of a new and perfect government, of perfect salvation, complete salvation, the reordering of all things and of perfect and complete justice. Christ refers to Himself in this passage, and it's no accident, as the Son of Man. Recalling the prophecy in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, reiterated again in Revelation 14, 14, where the Son of Man ascends to the Ancient of Days, receives a kingdom upon His completed work in history. This is the same Son of Man that is speaking to the disciples and promising this day in the future when the gospel goes forward over the earth and a new government is instituted and evil will get its final, ultimate, perfect reckoning and the people of God will enjoy shalom, peace forever and ever. He uses the term 12, Christ does, prophetically and symbolically. He says, you will sit on 12 thrones, speaking to the apostles, and uh, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, verse 28. This language again is picked up in Revelation later, and you can read about 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 tribes, 12 foundations, 12 apostles, 12,000 stadia, 144,000, which is 12 times 12, cubits. You can read of the 12, the 144,000, 12,000, each from the tribes that are pictured as the redeemed ones. This in Revelation 7, 4 through 10, the other references in Revelation 21, 12 through 17. Throughout Scripture, the term 12 refers to all, all 12 tribes, all the people of God. And so then this language is, is employed in this text. There will come a day when the apostles, through their gospel influence, having given the keys and the authority of the kingdom of heaven, recording, announcing, and applying, and writing down, even as we're reading today, are given the charge to bring forth with authority the message of the kingdom. And in this way, that apostolic calling sends them forth as, an, as emissaries and ambassadors. And in that sense, they are the precursor, or as the Bible also says, the foundation of the gospel. And there they are in this picture, judging the 12 tribes of the house of Israel. Remember, Hebrews talks about the foundation of the uh, prophets that went before and then the apostles, recognizing that Jesus' words were coming true in his day as the author writes to that church that what the apostles testify to has now become the authoritative testimony of our faith and will ever serve as the inscripturated canon to give us hope, encouragement, and a voice to echo their words and to be included in the great reaping 
the great reaping plan of the Lord of the harvest to bring in all of the tribes of Israel, that is, all of the people of God from every tongue and tribe and nation all over this globe. And that is happening even today, even this moment as we study these things in God's holy word. The eternal rewards are amazing. They're unfathomable. Christ speaks in terms that the mere finite mind cannot fully grasp. And he paints a picture of a future and a forever that ought to fill our hearts with expectation, anticipation, and joy and value judgments. This is our treasure, a future and a hope eternal. What Hebrews 4 calls the perfect rest of God, that Sabbath of Sabbaths where we join in perfect communion, fellowship, and rest with God eternal. This is our future. These are the riches of the kingdom. This is the treasure in heaven that has promised those who come and follow Him. So let us follow Him today. In spite of the range of cost, the rewards far outweigh what we are asked in some cases to sacrifice. Yes, we're called to leave houses at times. At times, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, closest of relationships, even within family, lands, possessions, withholdings, everything that represents possessions in this life are fair game and are on the table. God can take them. And we would say with Job, if we are confessing with the Scripture's truth, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Still, He is my treasure. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But when we fix our eyes on our Lord Jesus Christ, and when we consider the promise of the future, the answers to these questions that naturally spring up in the heart of man is astonishing, and the reward far outweighs the menial pittance of a sacrifice we are sometimes called to offer in this life. The kingdom of heaven and its economy are entirely different than the terms and conditions of this world. For in the kingdom of God it is said, many who are first will be last and the last first. In closing this morning, I'd like to read to you one more passage and this one from Paul. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Paul is perhaps, we mentioned before, textual exceptions, if you will, to the rich, the self-acclaimed, the self-made, who like a camel going through the needle are often are often distanced from the kingdom of God on account of their possessions. Paul is perhaps the greatest textual exception to this. He's the greatest exception in the gospel, testifying to the sovereignty of God, of the antichrist predisposition of the rich or the self-made. His testimony, that is Paul's testimony, it uh, contains the same shape in our passage, in this passage here in Philippians 3, as our passage in Matthew. There is a sin, salvation, and consummation aspect and shape to Paul's testimony. Paul is the first to tell us, is, would be the first one to tell us that the rewards of the gospel are not to be compared to any temporal circumstance. And listen, listen to this in context as we read in chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for Christ, for the sake of of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. There it is, all three aspects. Paul recognizes as rubbish his prior position of importance a Jew of Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, that is all lost to him now. He recognizes that the reason for his righteousness is not found in the law, but depends on faith. And thirdly, he looks forward, presses on to the mark of the prize of the high calling of God, the great riches. What then will he have, Paul knows it, to be evident and secure for him because Christ rose from the dead. 
He will share in that resurrection, and that by any means possible, he, that is Paul, may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And in light of these truths, the rewards of the gospel indeed are not to be compared with any temporal circumstances, not riches, not influence, not comfort, not peace, not safe passage in this world, insurance policies, success, friendships, fame, or riches of any other kind, only Christ and Christ alone. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we pray that you would search us and know us, see if there be in us any wicked way. We sang hymns today that refer to you as our treasure. May they not be hypocritical lies on our lips this morning, but they, may they reflect the truth. I pray that you would give us grace and change our heart so that we may not lay up for ourselves treasures on this earth, but that we would lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Lord, if we lack motivation, if we lack clarity, if our eyes are blind and short-sighted thinking with the riches that this world promises, I pray that you would open our eyes to Jesus Christ and all that the gospel secures. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.